0: Last week we opened by noting that not all laughs are created equal. I don't know if you remember that. But sometimes we laugh in delight, right? Belly laughs full of joy and energy. Um, but other times we laugh in despair, like like Sarah. Not all laughs are created equal. And just for the record, uh, neither are our prayers. Not all prayers are created equal. I've I've read about great people of prayer throughout history, uh, men and women of faith, uh, whose prayers really moved mountains, changed nations, started revolutions, you know, like the Hudson Taylors, the Susanna Wesley's the John Knoxes of the world, the men and women who viewed a calling of partnering with God in prayer. And their prayers, just if I'm being candid, their prayers often sound different than mine. Sometimes my prayers are marked with pride. Sometimes I sound like the Pharisee that Jesus talked about in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I'm not like those people. Sometimes my prayers are laced with laziness. Sometimes I pray in a very hurried way where my prayer is over just as it starts. Sometimes I feel just so exhausted and weak that in prayer I barely can manage help. A hurried word spoken before a meal Sometimes I throw up those, does this even make a difference kind of prayers. Not all prayers are created equal. Now, I'm not trying to make it at all today a competition in prayer. (laughs) Judging prayers was at an 8.5 out of 10, 10 out of 10, 2 out of 10. It's not a competition when it comes to prayer. And I'm I'm also well aware that most people already feel inadequate in their prayer lives. It's something that we all feel like we could grow in. But not all prayers are created equal. Why is that? I think underneath a lot of that is a fundamental assumption about who God is. If you look underneath, sometimes our lack of prayer or our lackadaisical approach to prayer, underneath that is an assumption about who God is or how he rolls, how he operates, or even really what he wants to do in prayer with us. Today, we find in our ongoing series, as we've been looking at the life so far of Abraham, we find God inviting and expressing partnership with abraham in a very particular way today it comes out in prayer and i think that when we come to discover who god is and what he really wants for us and with us it really is remarkable it really is powerful so It's a lot more than just a -a rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, before a meal. It's more than a passing plea. Um, What God has in mind for us and with us is a beautiful thing. If you have a Bible, why don't you open up to Genesis chapter 18. I'm gonna have it up on the screen as well. Genesis 18, verse 16. So I think I mentioned this last week. This is part two of last week's sermon. I was gonna preach it all as one. I got halfway through prepping for last week, and I realized... There's more here that needs to be focused on than just kind of getting through it to the end part. So we focused on the first half last week, and this is kind of part two. Genesis chapter 18, the first part of the chapter, it opens with Abraham and Sarah in the heat of the day hanging out in their tent under the trees. And they get at this time when you're not supposed to have visitors because it's way too hot to go anywhere or do anything. At this very unexpected time, God comes and visits them. And we're told that Abraham looks up and there's three visitors coming their way. And God uses that time and that encounter not just to engage Abraham, though he had engaged Abraham many other times. He comes on that day to engage Sarah. He's got words for her. He's got things to say to her. And he speaks about the fact that even though she is approaching the age of 90, that she herself is going to have a son. That God would be faithful to his promise. And so that's the whole laughter piece. She laughs. She laughs at God's promise of her having a baby in her old age. And her laugh was not necessarily a laughter of excitement. It was more of disbelief. It was a laughter of pain and despair of having been barren for so many years, and now she's at 90 (laughs) trying to believe that God would still have her be a mom. But there's more to the visit. So Abraham and crew they whip up this massive feast. They welcome God, the, the visitors. They have this meal. They have this engagement with God and Abraham and Sarah and the promise and speaking of the child that is to come. But there was more going on in the visit than just that. Sure enough, that was an important part of the visit. This is the other reason why the three visitors, why the divine come this day. Chapter 18, verse 16, it says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So this is the point where the story splits. And we've had the meal and the encounter and the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah and the reminder of the promise and some really specific laughter restoration work being done in Sarah's life. And now the story splits and we realize that God had a dual agenda on this day for that visit. Verse 16, two of the three visitors set out toward Sodom, leaving now the Lord with Abraham by himself. And then you hear God's musings. It's kind of odd to hear God talk this way as he's thinking through this and processing it. But he says, shall I hide what I'm gonna do from Abraham? He's talking to himself. Shall I, shall I hide? And you realize that he's saying that because he's not, going to do, he's not gonna hide it. He's gonna reveal it. He's gonna tell Abraham what he's doing. And here's what he's doing. He says, because of the outcry against the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, he has come down to see whether or not it's true. And God is showing his plan regarding these neighboring cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now in verse 22, we will get to the main action of the story. We haven't gotten there yet. But a few things I want to clarify as we kind of set the stage for this part of this chapter and this story. So this is the first time now that we get introduced to these towns, Sodom and Gomorrah. Ever heard of them? Right. I, I think that many people even who aren't familiar with the Bible or don't go to church have heard of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. They've become infamous in many ways. So I'm just going to pull the room. Be candid. Be honest. When you hear the term Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think of? That's a real question. What do you, what do you think of? Evil? Evil? Debauchery. Debauchery? Wickedness? Wickedness? promiscuous sexuality, destruction, destruction. Judgment. judgment, anything else, cannibalism, cannibalism. okay, fire and, brimstone. fire and brimstone, okay. Now, obviously, what we've just read in Genesis 18, these cities have been marked by sin. In fact, we're told here in the text, chapter 18, verse 20, very grave sin, sin to such a degree that somehow this outcry has been heard in the heavenlies against what they have been up to. I would contend though that a lot of our kind of um, connotations with Sodom and Gomorrah have more to do with Genesis 19 and the story that follows than Genesis 18 and even other places in the Bible. And sure enough, in Genesis 19, the story goes that these messengers go on and leave Abraham and Sarah, and they go down into the city, and Lot welcomes them, and then there's this scene in the city where the men of the city come out and essentially desire to gang-rape these visitors, and there's a whole story that unfolds with that, a wild scene that unfolds. But just so that we're clear, at this point in Genesis 18, Genesis 19 hasn't happened. And in fact, I would contend that that scene in Genesis 19 has far less to do with what often is talked about with homosexuality. And the scene that unfolds in Genesis 19 has more to do with, again, um, a tribal sexual dominance by heterosexual men against these visitors. But again, that hasn't even happened yet in the story. God is saying there's an outcry against this city, against these cities. And and because the outcry of their very grave sin is so great, I'm coming down to see if it's true, and if it's true, then to bring judgment. What is the grave sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? What is this thing that has happened in their cities that has caused God to come down and check it out and bring judgment? It's not Genesis nineteen. Ezekiel tells us what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16, verse 49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Yikes. I I guess I just want to frame it that way because we come, oh yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah. I know exactly what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you? Here's the judgment of the outcry that's happening against the grave sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Pride. Excess food. Prosperous ease. And neglecting the poor and needy. Sounds like every city in America. Pride, ease, excess, and disregarding the poor. So God comes down. The outcry has been heard. And again, I know this is kind of odd language, like God needs to come down, like doesn't he know what's going on? The, the, the picture that is being used here of God is that God is the, the wise judge of the earth. And the wise judge of the earth doesn't rely on hearsay. And so he's gonna come and see for himself, is this actually true? And so he's gonna come and and, and give a righteous, right, truthful verdict. So now God is musing and saying, shall I hide what I'm gonna do to Sodom and Gomorrah from Abraham? And he's like, no, I'm not gonna hide that from Abraham. And then he goes on to explain why. He says, shall I hide this from Abraham, seeing that he will become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him? And you see what God has had in mind for Abraham. I've chosen him He's going to be great. I'm going to bless him and through him bring blessing to all of the nations. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. God is creating in Abraham a partner of blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. And then the crux of the choosing and the blessing is verse 19. I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So God is saying, I am the, the righteous judge of the earth, but I am going to carry out my plan of blessing through the world by picking this person and his family, and that he will teach his kids the way of righteousness and justice. Because God is a God of righteousness and justice. And now he has found a family to partner with, to see righteousness and justice played out on earth. And now we have Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're prideful and they have excess and they're living in ease, and they're forgetting the poor, and now I'm coming to see what's going to happen in this. Am I going to hide that from Abraham? I'm not going to hide that from Abraham. I'm going to tell him what I'm up to. I'm going to tell him what I'm doing. Next slide. Righteousness and justice. It's a phrase, it's this pairing, mishpat, tzedakah, this pairing that you find all throughout the Bible. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. God is about righteousness and justice. And God is looking for people, his intent was through Abraham, to create a family of blessing that would stand for righteousness and justice. I'm telling you, my friends, this is a beautiful description of the people of God. This is what God has intended from the beginning for his people to join him, to be a people of righteousness and justice by doing mishpat and sadakah to bless the world in this way. So what might that look like? What would that look like for Abraham to be aware of this, for Abraham to partner with God in seeing righteousness and justice take place in a place like Sodom and Gomorrah or anywhere else? Now the story will tell us what that could look like. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I, who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to God and said... He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So, these two men, these two visitors, they leave and they head toward Sodom and Gomorrah. It leaves God and Abraham alone. And the, the conversation kicks off between God and Abraham. What does Abraham do? God's like, I'm not gonna hide what I'm doing from Abraham because my desire is for him to be a great nation and through him, I want his descendants to learn the way of righteousness and justice. And so I'm gonna have this conversation with Abraham and here's the conversation. It says they leave. Verse 22, it says that Abraham stands still before the Lord. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't fidget away. He doesn't get distracted away. He he comes and he stands still before the Lord. And then verse 23, it says that Abraham draws near and he speaks. What does it look like for Abraham to be a person of blessing? What does it look like for Abraham to be a person of righteousness and justice? What does it look like for Abraham to partner with God in his work in the world? Here's what happens. Abraham stands before the Lord, and he draws near, and he speaks, and Abraham prays. He has this ministry of intercession, and he stands still in the presence of God and he draws near. Almost like, almost like an attorney approaching the bench. It's the phrasing there. He stands still before the Lord and he draws near and he doesn't back away and he's being invited closer in to God and his heart and he has this opportunity to engage God in this way. And what we then end up with here is a bartering encounter with God, Right? Have you ever been in a culture or a context where you barter to buy something? You ever traveled and been in a different country? It's a different experience. Here in the U.S., you go to the store, there's a price tag. You pay what's on the price tag. Or if it's on sale, it's marked on the price tag. You don't go into the store, you don't go into Best Buy and say, I'll give you 50 bucks for it. But if you've been to another country, there's some cultures that operate that way. My my junior year of college, I spent a month in China teaching English. And the markets, the street markets there in China were some of my first experiences with bartering. And it felt weird to do, It it felt odd to do. But they taught us the phrases, how much is this? And they tell you a price. And then they teach you, here's what you need to say. Say, ah. Too much and walk away. And I felt rude to do that. Like, no, this is, this is what they want you to do. Say too much and walk away. And then they'll come back with you another price. And then you can go back and forth until you figure out a price. It's like, it's like Shark Tank. You ever watch Shark Tank on TV? They, they come in, they make the pitch. And they come in with how much money they want for how much equity they'll give, but they know that the sharks are gonna take some, and so there's this game back and forth, and it's not personal, but there's this bartering that takes place to come to the point of agreement. That's what makes this whole encounter with God so fascinating. God brings Abraham into the whole Sodom and Gomorrah scene, and the outcry of their sin and wickedness has come before the courts of heaven, and the wise judge of the earth has come down to see if it has merit. And in the presence of God, Abraham stands still, and he draws near, and he begins to barter with the divine. And in his bartering, he assumes judgment. He assumes that the righteous judge of the earth will do what is right. And he assumes that if he hears this outcry, he's going to deal with it in judgment. And he begins to ask God, are you going to wipe out, are you going to sweep away the whole place if you find 50 righteous people there? Suppose there are 50 And Abraham expresses some measure of disgust. Far be it from you. There's no way. That seems ludicrous. It seems profane, contaminated, impure for you to wipe out a whole city if there are still 50 righteous people there. That's the heart of his cry. That would be crazy for the character of God. So then Abraham ends his opening argument with Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And he's playing on these words, the same root there. Judge and justice has that mishpat, shofat, mishpat sound. Will the judge do what is just? What is Abraham doing here? He is interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. And the premise of his argument has to do with the idea of how does the righteousness of some impact the wickedness of the many? For 50, for 45, for 40. Will the righteousness of 50 be able to somehow deal with the wickedness of the many? Now we know from the Bible and from life that the reverse is true, right? That the sin of one can impact the righteousness of the many. Right? We know that in in basketball that one player can foul another and then it impacts the whole team as they then shoot free throws. Or in football, that the one player jumps across the line before the snap, the flag gets thrown, just because of the sin of the one impacts the team and they move forward or back on the football field because of the sin of one impacts the many. Or in school, one loud student can impact recess for the many so we get the principle of the one of one person's misstep ruining the lot of the whole but now abraham is being creative and he's applying it in reverse and he's interceding for sodom and gomorrah he's interceding for them for those people the people that deserve judgment the wicked the evil He's interceding for them and he's using this creative reversal where he's saying, again, can the righteousness of the minority cover the sin of the majority? That's at the heart of his prayer. What if there were 50? Would that be mishpat? And what does God say? He's like, no, 50? I, I won't do it. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous people, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. And that's great. And Abraham goes back for more. Let's say there's five less. How about for 45? And again, you love, as you read the text and you read the banter and you read the story, Abraham's like, oh, far, like you see his humility. I'm just, I'm just dust and ashes. Who am I to even come before God? But five more? How about for 40? <clears throat> How about for 30? How about for 20? Oh, one last time. How about 10? And the bartering, commences. And all on the way, Abraham speaks with deference. I'm dust and ashes. Let not the Lord be angry. But every time God says what? Yes. What if there are 50? Yes. What if there are 45? Yes. What if there are 40? Yes. What about 30? Yes. What about 20? Yes. What if there's 10? Yes. And then the Lord leaves and Abraham goes home. What just happened? A couple things I want to highlight as we end today, bring this to a point. First, I want to acknowledge that there is something really beautiful about what Abraham is doing here. He is interceding for others. Here we find him committed to playing his part in God's righteousness and justice in the world through intercession and prayer. He believes that he is actually being invited by God to be a part of the blessing to the nations by interceding for people that maybe others wouldn't intercede for. He's not just praying for himself. True, his family Lot is in there, but he's not just praying for Lot and his family and friends. He actually is interceding for the whole crew of these, quote, evil neighbors. And Sodom and Gomorrah find an intercessor willing to barter with God. Can I just say that oftentimes as Jesus followers, oftentimes as Christians, we're more quick to call down fire from heaven on our evil neighbors than to step into the work of intercession on their behalf. Sodom and Gomorrah find someone who's willing to stand in the gap for them that's crazy I loved Tim Keller's description of this he says that Abraham is not just praying he's priesting and he becomes invited to be the legal representative of a particular city before Almighty God Would we have the audacity to step in as legal representatives of people and places far from God, toward God. So often of my prayers are just focused on me and my family, making it better for me and my family. God calls us, invites us as a people of the blessing to intercede on behalf of others. There's something beautiful and special about his willingness to stand still and draw near, to approach God himself on behalf of others, to take on the call to partner with God for righteousness and justice in the world. But pushing even further and deeper into this, I think it's also important to point out some of the details of Abraham's bartering. Here he comes into the presence of God before the holy and wise judge of the earth. And he keeps pestering God. He hounds God, right? Yeah, he won't let go. 50, 45, 40, 30. He keeps working at this. And he harasses God with his own word and with his own character. It's beautiful. Abraham is praying for his enemies. But it's interesting that the more Abraham engages God, it's Abraham who actually ends up learning a lesson in this. He learns a lesson about the character and nature of God, hopefully a lesson that we can learn too. You see, as Abraham barters with God and processes with God and bargains with God, you see his view of God beginning to be flipped. He expects God to bring judgment and to do what is right and to do what is just. But throughout the whole scene, in the back and forth of the story, Abraham is acting like someone who has to squeeze mercy out of God. Right? Right? maybe 50 people can i get you to be merciful for the sake of 50 maybe i can squeeze some mercy out of god for 45 can i he's expecting god to be cheap and chintzy with grace and yet all through the process what happens along the line what does god say yes yes 50, yes, 45, yes, 40, yes, 30, yes, 20, yes, 10, yes. One person said, Abraham is a man who won't take yes for an answer. But God just keeps saying yes. And he expects God to say no. He expects God just to judge in his holiness. And yet we find God really quick and and, and eager to show his mercy. What's the song we sang earlier today? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. How often is our view of God, he is just that crabby, stingy God that I've got to somehow manipulate and squeeze goodness and grace out of. That is not the God of the scriptures. God, he he, he says, this is who I am. He says this in Exodus and a few other times. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We don't believe it. Abraham begins bartering with God like he's gotta squeeze mercy out of God, and God's like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yep, 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 yep. And along the way, it's almost as though Abraham's view of this God is just being transformed. What if he is actually merciful? What if he actually desires to forgive sin? Who is this God? What is he like? I think it's not a stretch to say that we often pray like Abraham and we approach God that way and we pray that way. We're ready to deal with the judge, with his holiness, with his righteousness, but I'm not sure many of us know what to do with his mercy and grace. How much of our conversation with God, our activity with God, our activity for God is based on the assumption that he's going to be stingy toward us. Stinginess over generosity, judgment over mercy. (laughs) Oh, and one last thing. Doesn't this story end weird? You read Genesis 18, you see the story end, and Abraham stops. Where does he stop? What number? Ten. Why does he stop at 10? Why doesn't he ask for the next would be one? He goes 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. It's like you're watching a football game and they're running the ball and they take a knee on the 10-yard line. You're like, no, go to the end zone. Why does he stop at 10? The seventh question should have been, what if there's one? And many scholars speculate that it's because Abraham knows that there isn't one. Not him, not Lot, and so he goes home. But he stops at 10, and the city isn't saved. If you read Genesis 19 and beyond, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. But can you see? This story actually is establishing something also It's directing us to something greater. It's pointing us to a new principle that is being established before Abraham's very eyes. That the righteousness of the minority actually can cover the sin of the majority. What if there was 50? He's like, yep, I would forgive. I would would cover it. What if there's 45? Yes. 40? Yes. 30? Yes. You're sick of me counting down, aren't you? 30? Yes. 20? Yes. 10? Yes. If the question were asked, what if there was one? The answer would be? Yes. Yes. What if there was one? My friends, the good news of the gospel is there is one. The righteousness of the one is able to save God isn't stingy with his mercy. He isn't stingy with his grace. And just like the sin of one can ruin the whole world, through one righteous, God can save and redeem the world. And that one wasn't Abraham. He stopped praying at 10. And that one wasn't Lot. That one isn't you and that one isn't me. But there is one in his, the coming one. His name is Jesus. And because of the one, the righteousness of the one covers the sin of the many. And that is the hope of the world. It's Jesus, the righteousness of one, the holiness of one who makes a difference to save those who have no business being saved. And we begin to learn a lot more about God through this encounter with Abraham and his bartering. Theologian Walter Brueggemann says, by the new mathematics of Genesis 18, 22 to 33, one is enough to save. That's the new math of Genesis 18, not just 50 or 45 or 40 or 30 or 20 or 10, but because of one. And Abraham runs smack dab into the age-old problem of justice and mercy, holiness and grace. Like, isn't it, isn't it injustice to pardon? How is holiness upheld with mercy? How is justice upheld with grace? What's the way through that predicament? The way through is to find one who would be perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly just, who then would also be able to then give the mercy and grace to the many who don't deserve it. Abraham stops at 10, but it leaves us longing for the one who would come. And if the I's haven't been dotted yet for you and the T's haven't been crossed, ultimately, all of Scripture points us to Jesus. He is the one who is greater than Abraham. He is the one who intercedes for the sinful cities of the world. He is the one who comes to save those who are proud, oppressive, apathetic. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one whose righteousness counts for the many, He is the one for us who is enough. Jesus fully intercedes and he fully represents and he doesn't back away, he makes a way in his perfect holiness, in his perfect blameless life to uphold the holiness of the Father for the judge of the earth to judge justly, but he judged his son for us so that mercy and grace can flow this whole story begs the question, what if there were one? And the answer is, there is. See, that kind of God changes me. That kind of God changes how I pray. That kind of God changes how I engage with others. And it makes me grateful for his life as being the one We don't deserve, but also changes the way I deal with the Sodom and Gomorrahs that I live in. One is enough to save us all. Would we be willing to intercede for righteousness and justice in our world? I see God's heart toward the wicked like me i see god's heart toward the wayward i see god's heart to extend mercy and grace and here's his heart yes 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 he isn't stingy he is lavish he is generous he is over the top in his desire to extend forgiveness to those who don't deserve it especially to our enemies especially to me It's the beauty of John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he loves the world, that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Do we believe that? Do we pray like that? Do we intercede like that? To the Sodom and Gomorrahs of our world, our instinct is to call down fire. But what if God is looking for partners in a family of blessing, who understands the new math of one? Who will partner, who will pray, who will stand in the gap, who will intercede, who will introduce others to a God who is more than willing to forgive? Through Jesus. Pray. Guys, sometimes these stories seem odd and weird and so just culturally removed from anything we know. And yet there's a beauty in them when we crack down into the midst of them. And we see Abraham's growth. stepping into this place of intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah and yet still even missing the the mark. And so we are so thankful and grateful for Jesus that I pray for anyone in the room today who has not yet come by faith to receive forgiveness from him. That if we confess that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we can be saved from that which we deserve. God, I pray you would be doing a work by your spirit, drawing people to yourself, that they would experience the mind-blowing, undeserved love of God through Jesus. And God, I pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have misrepresented you and mistaken you for being this stodgy, uh, stingy God that we have to somehow squeeze grace out of. May we have a picture of who you are in the fullness of who you are that changes and transforms not only how we pray, but how we live and how we view those around us. And what an honor to be a family that gets to stand for righteousness and justice. What an honor to intercede on behalf of others. Would help us, like Abraham, be still, drawn near, and speak with you, even today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, the One. Amen.